0: This
1: is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look
2: inside your genes.
3: How do we learn complex tasks like playing the piano? Why can we remember things better after a good night's sleep? And why do people, and fruit flies, drink again after the hangover from hell? The answers are all in your genes.
2: So what I study is memories for the intoxication experience. And what I found is that even in flies, the initial effects of alcohol are always aversive, something like a hangover effect.
3: Plus, why large-scale searches for so-called genes for schizophrenia and other psychiatric diseases are turning out to be trickier than we thought, and a gene of the month with a touch of Scottish, or maybe Hollywood, spirit. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for January 2015 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. This month, I'm reporting back again from the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting, held at the Royal Society at the end of November, which focused on the genetics and neurobiology of learning and memory. One of the most interesting talks, maybe if only for the cute videos of mice running around on wheels, was from Bill Richardson from University College London. He's investigating the role of myelin, the fatty white insulating material that coats our nerves, and how it's involved in learning.
1: We uh, and others discovered relatively recently, that new myelin continues to be formed in the the brain of a mouse um, long after um, embryonic development and and early postnatal development into um, er, um, young adulthood. And that was quite unexpected because you would expect for the brain to work normally, everything should be set up early uh, in order to be able to be programmed later.
3: You kind of think you've made enough, you don't need to make any more.
1: Exactly, yes. By finding that it continues to be made from these um, immature cells uh, called uh, oligodendrocyte precursor cells, that raised the question of what is the function of the, the newly adult-born myelin. Also, there are, there's an increasing body of evidence in humans that um, people who uh, learn complex motor tasks, that means uh, complex sequences of movements, like juggling or using the abacus or playing the piano. They they develop changes, structural changes, in their brain, which are not necessarily to do with neurons. They um, have structural changes which can be detected by MRI in the white matter tracts, And the white matter are those parts of the brain which are called the information superhighways, They don't contain the neurons themselves, they just contain the connections between the neurons, so it's where all the traffic occurs. And those uh, superhighways contain myelin. And so this is another link suggesting that new myelin might be formed uh, in response to training or learning.
3: So how do you go about discovering if this connection, if if making new roads in this superhighway from Mm. myelin, is the key to learning?
1: Well, it's a very simple concept. Uh, We we try and prevent the formation of new myelin and see if that uh, impacts the ability of a mouse to, to learn a complex motor task.
3: Now, a mouse can't learn to play the piano, so how do, you, how do you challenge a mouse to learn something complicated?
1: Well, we'd like the mouse to play the piano, but we devised um, a, a task which is a little akin to playing the piano for a mouse, which is to um, take a running wheel with rungs and remove some of the rungs so that it's a irregularly spaced uh, rungs. Uh, and we call that the complex wheel.
3: So it has to kind of figure out, oh, miss one, miss two, miss a few.
1: That's correct. It's like um, running up a staircase and some of the steps are are taller than others and you have to remember um, where the, the trip steps are, so to, so to speak. For some reason that I don't understand, they seem to enjoy it. So you don't have to give them a reward. They will... Um, persevere and become very proficient at running on those wheels.
3: Just for the joy of running?
1: Just for the joy of running, yes.
3: (laughs) So then how do you test whether it is this myelin growth that's involved in their learning?
1: We have to somehow uh, prevent the production of new myelin and see if that affects the ability of the mice to learn to run on this complex wheel. So how do we affect the production of myelin? Well, that's where the genetics comes in. We use genetic tricks to delete a specific transcription factor, a a crucial protein or the gene encoding that protein that is required to elaborate uh, the structure which is known as myelin. That genetic switch that we introduce into the mice is activated by a drug, tamoxifen, so that if we inject tamoxifen into the mice um, it doesn't affect their pre-existing myelin but it prevents any new myelin from forming after that point.
3: So what happens then if you get a mouse and you treat it in this way and you try to make it learn
1: something? So we inject the tamoxifen, we showed that we can effectively prevent 95% of the new myelin forming, and then we give them the complex wheel and find that they're pretty poor now at learning the complex wheel compared to their littermates that still have the gene. So and that
3: seems to be a pretty strong confirmation that it is the growth of this new myelin that's, that's involved in their learning.
1: Um, It's a very good clue, but, of course, that on its own, that one experiment, uh, doesn't necessarily tell us it's learning per se. It could be that knocking out that gene has unexpected effects on fitness. It may have reduced cardiovascular tone or reduced muscle tone. So we have to do a control, and the control was to allow the mice to learn to run on the wheel before we knocked out the gene. And when we did that, of course, during the learning phase while the gene was still present, they could learn normally, like their, uh, their wild-type or normal littermates. Then we knocked out the gene and put them back on the wheel, and they were now able to remember what they had previously learned. And that shows that they don't need new myelin to remember something that they have previously learned, only to lay down the new, the new skill.
3: And this makes sense if you use the analogy of a highway. You know, once you've laid down the tarmac,
1: yeah, it's there. It's there. Well, that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah. Um, we've also starting to look at other learning and memory tasks. Still sticking with motor learning, we are training mice to pick up food pellets with one hand, um, which they can do, but um, they're pretty clumsy at first, but they get better at that. And after training with one hand, we can detect um, cellular changes in the white matter and the grey matter on the contralateral side, the opposite side of the brain to the hand that they're using. Um, because, as we know, the... Um, The pathways in the brain cross, and that's rather useful because it means that we can compare the trained side of the brain with the untrained side, and that provides a very nice internal control. We can compare one side of the same mouse with its opposite side, if you see what I mean. So
3: now we have these really nice clues that the growth of new myelin is really important for learning. Mm. This is in mice. How do we know that similar pathways may be at work in humans when we're learning things like playing the piano or running on a complicated wheel?
1: There is MRI evidence that there are structural changes in the white matter, the the information superhighways, and that's what originally got us um, thinking about this whole question of uh, adaptive myelination. But at the same time, it has recently been shown, or reported at least, that myelin production in in humans does not extend throughout adult life as it does in in mice. Most myelin production in humans is completed by age 10 or so. Although there is a small trickle which carries on into um, young adulthood, into the early 20s, maybe uh, learning new tasks requires a relatively small proportional change in the myelin which cannot be detected um, so far.
3: So could this explain how old dogs can learn new tricks that you do still need a little bit of myelin when you're older?
1: Dogs do learn new tricks, but much more slowly than they would have done if they were younger. And uh, everyday experience tells us the same thing about um, humans. And another thing about myelin is it's... um, Since it's a, a sheath that wraps around the axon, it has a kind of protective role and it preserves the circuit... And as we know, if you learn to ride a bicycle, um, you can put the bicycle in the shed for maybe 20, 30 years and get it out at the end of that time, and you can still ride the bicycle. So motor skills are a very long-lived thing, and uh, that also smacks of some kind of structural support by myelin, in my opinion.
3: I always find it amazing. I'm a musician, and sometimes mm. if I haven't played a piece for ages, I sit down and I play it, and it, mm. it, it's there. It comes
1: there. back. Well, the very first uh, MRI studies in humans were to do with pianists in fact showing that the amount of time uh, a professional musician practiced before age 11 in fact uh, was reflected in the amount of myelin in his or her white matter.
3: That was Bill Richardson from UCL. You've probably heard the phrase sleep on it to help you solve a problem and it's often said by students that a good night's sleep after revising is better than an all-nighter of cramming but why? One person who's trying to figure out how sleep helps us learn and how sleep problems might be involved in brain diseases such as schizophrenia is Matt Jones from Bristol University who also helped to organise the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting.
0: The man on the streets will acknowledge that sleep is important. We all feel a bit rough if our sleep is disrupted, which obviously has a long time ago raised the question of exactly what is sleep for. It's clear, based on what's going on in the brain during sleep, that it's not just a time of rest... Uh, We're not just recuperating, we're also sorting through in our sleeping minds the wheat from the chaff and deciding which information to hold on to, to consolidate, and which information perhaps is uh, not so important and we can choose not to remember in the long term.
3: And there was kind of a, a bit of a thing at university, you'd say if you're studying for an exam, do some revision, then sleep on it and you'll know it better the next day.
0: No, that's right, and the, the, you know, there's well-controlled evidence that a good night's sleep will improve your performance uh, subsequently. So we should all strive to sleep more and better, I think.
3: How do you try and study the impact of sleep on learning? What are you doing?
0: We're using uh, a translational approach. So we're studying sleep in rodent models in rats and mice in which we can study brain activity during sleep in great detail and trying to understand how information is processed in the brain during sleep in these animals And then at a more clinical extreme, we're studying patient groups who have uh, disrupted sleep and trying to understand how their disrupted sleep impacts on their symptoms and in particular memory impairment. So to date, we've focused on schizophrenia, which is a disease that if you ask a psychiatrist, they'll be quite dismissive about the role of sleep disruption in that disease. But if you ask a patient, they often cite bad sleep as having a major impact on their quality of life. So we've seen in one cohort of uh, patients suffering schizophrenia that their um, brain activity during sleep is abnormal, uh, so it's not as well coordinated as it is in in, um, healthy volunteers, and that the extent of disruption in brain activity during sleep correlates with the extent of memory impairment. So this obviously offers an opportunity to intervene, to try and normalise brain activity during sleep in schizophrenia, and hopefully show that has a beneficial effect for patients.
3: So how are you trying to unpick maybe what's going on at a a deeper level in the kind of the nerve cells and the molecules that are involved as we learn when we sleep?
0: In those experiments in animals where we can record from individual identified nerve cells and track their activity both during learning, so during waking behaviour, and during sleep, uh, there's the possibility for us to uh, capture those cells and control their activity. So, for example, you could um, bias the kind of information that animals store in long-term memory by activating particular groups of nerve cells um, during sleep and it's a a sort of interesting experiment Uh, you know our goal is not to control the minds of rats but (laughs) it offers us insights into what's going on in the human mind uh, during sleep.
3: So by stimulating different bits of a rat's brain while it sleeps you can kind of make it remember something more or make it forget something that it really needs to remember?
0: Yeah exactly and so you can immediately think of all sorts of nefarious uh, military motivated experiments that the CIA might be interested in but i can assure you we're not funded by them
3: what do you still need to find out about what's going on when we sleep what are your kind of your known unknowns
0: well, one of the big issues in the field remains what's going on during different stages of sleep so as most people know we have different uh, stages of sleep that we cycle through during the course of the night most famously we have rem rapid eye movement sleep and non-rem sleep and it's, not, it, it's still not clear what those two different stages are contributing, particularly in the context of learning and memory. So if someone chose to give me a few million quid um, and said, go and do what you want, I would try and focus on what's REM doing and what's non-REM doing and how do the two stages of sleep work together to, to finesse uh, learning and memory.
3: And You've presented your results here at the Genetic Society uh, autumn meeting. What do we know about how genetics or genetic variations affect this sort of sleep and and memory issue?
0: Well, I certainly don't know enough. Obviously, in relation to the schizophrenia work, we're uh, recruiting healthy volunteers at the moment on the basis of their genotype at um, loci that are related to, to risk for psychiatric disease. So we're trying to use that approach to understand whether sleep disruption early on in the disease can exacerbate symptoms. But one appeal of sleep is that it's quite easy to measure at a population level. So lots of people wear wristbands that monitor their movement, for example. And if hundreds of thousands of people are doing that, if we can capture those data and relate them to genotype, perhaps we can begin to tie these things together.
3: Matt Jones from Bristol University. Now, I'm sure this has never happened to you, but I bet you know someone who's been for a big night out on the booze, woken up feeling awful and swearing they'll never drink again, only to be back on the sauce a few days later. It turns out that forgetting the horrible effects of drinking is something we share with tiny fruit flies. Carla Cowan from Brown University in the USA is training flies to associate a particular smell with an alcoholic tipple and figuring out how they switch between so-called aversive memory when they recall how bad they feel to appetitive memory when they can't wait to get back to that fly pub.
2: So what I study is memories for the intoxication experience. And what I found is that even in flies, the initial effects of alcohol are always aversive, something like a hangover effect. But what's intriguing is... um, Um, like going to the bar on a a Friday and uh, Saturday morning not feeling well but wanting to go out again Saturday night, um, the long-lasting effects of alcohol are repetitive. And what I'm interested in figuring out is how are neural circuits mediating this effect and what are the molecular mechanisms acting in these circuits to affect them. Obviously fruit flies don't go out to the pub. What's fruit flies' relationship with alcohol normally like? Are they big drinkers? So uh, flies, like humans, have a long natural history with alcohol. So humans have been consuming alcohol for centuries, and um, and flies actually spend a good portion of their life in low concentrations of alcohol. They lay their eggs in fermenting fruit, and in fermenting fruit, of course, are patches of moderate concentrations of alcohol. So as larvae, um, they eat this alcohol, and it's evolutionary advantageous to them. For example, a larvae that has a 6% alcohol concentration in its body is less likely to be parasitized by a wasp. So what's very interesting also is that um, flies' effects to uh, higher concentrations of alcohol are remarkably behaviorally similar to those in humans. They go through the same stages. At first you get disinhibition, and then you get a loss of locomotor coordination, and then the flies will just pass out in the bottom of the vial. And the time it takes them to recover is almost the same as the time it would take us to recover.
3: So how long does it take a fly to kind of go from, I'm never doing that again, to,
2: yeah, let's have another drink? Well, with the parameters I tested, it's, uh, it's somewhere between 12 and 15 hours. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good going. So the next time the flies
3: encounter alcohol, they think, yeah, this is great, Let, let's party.
2: Pretty much, yeah. They find the reward long-lasting, so it lasts up to seven days, which is a long time for a memory for a fly. They'll also walk over a 120-volt electric shock, to get to the odour that was previously paired with, paired with alcohol. So this suggests that it's an extremely appetitive and intense memory.
3: So I, I'm sure some of us would uh, deeply sympathise with that. But tell me then, you're trying to understand what's going on at a molecular level. What have you found out so far about how they form these, these different types of memories, the kind of, oh my God, no, and then the, yeah, let's do it again?
2: So what I think is happening is you're getting parallel circuits that encode both the aversive memory and the appetitive memory. And then you get feedback between these circuits. The appetitive memory can turn off the aversive memory circuit, for example, or potentially vice versa if something goes wrong. And I'm interested in figuring out what inside of these neurons is affecting it. And one of the molecules that I looked at is... uh, a regulator in the Notch signaling pathway. Notch is really important for maintaining long-term memory. So we're trying to figure out how alcohol affects this to potentially um, result in aberrant memory formation. So Notch is one of these kind of signals that tells cells what to do, what kind of cell to be, what to get up to. Pretty much, it's a cell-cell signaling molecule. So it's it's like a, an early signal that affects a lot of downstream effectors.
3: So now you're kind of starting to understand some of the molecules that are involved in these, these different types of memory and how the, yes, let's do it, overwrites the, oh, God, never, <laughs> never again kind of thing. Um, how are you going forward with this? And, and do you think that there are maybe similar mechanisms at work in human brains?
2: Um, so I absolutely do think there are similar mechanisms affecting human brains. Notch signaling is actually one of the most well-conserved signaling pathways. It's been studied for over 100 years in flies now. And and biochemically, things work extremely similarly. And I'm interested in figuring out how to target area, uh, different types of notch signaling changes to different kinds of brain regions. And I think this will be extremely informative for developing pharmacological treatments. There are currently um, treatments for uh, cancer being developed for drugs in the notch signaling pathway. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to perhaps use some of these drugs to treat um, addiction-related disorders. And could you make an anti-hangover pill? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, I'll work on it. I think uh, more realistically what we'll probably try to do is is decrease the really strong appetitive memories by enhancing the aversive memories so that people don't crave alcohol quite as strongly.
3: That was Carla Cowan from Brown University in the States. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we've got a bold and brave gene of the month, but now it's time to return to the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting, where we heard an intriguing talk from Daniela Postuma from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. For many years, scientists have been searching for genes involved in psychiatric diseases, such as schizophrenia and depression, but although many gene variations have been found, each of them seems to have a tiny effect on the risk of developing an illness. Yet we know that a significant chunk of the risk for these conditions must be in our DNA somewhere. Danielle is trying to look at the problem in new ways by studying whole networks of genes rather than single suspects and by using an intriguing new technique based on reprogrammed stem cells made from adult cells known as induced pluripotent stem cells.
4: This all started I think um, 30, 30, 40 years ago when we said well if traits are heritable it should be that we should be able to find genes for a trait. And then, uh, so uh, selecting one gene and then trying to find association with that gene and a trait. So, kind of the usual suspects. It's like, yeah. this, this should be important. Let's see if, we, if it links
3: up to this behavior.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, that didn't really yield a lot of uh, reliable associations. And then, a couple of years ago, we were finally able to do this at a gene wide scale thanks to the development of microarrays. So we started searching for genes for various disorders um, by s- scanning the whole genome. So that's what many people have been doing for the last eight years or so. I see
3: quite a lot of headlines, you know, scientists find 100 genes for autism, they find 100 genes for schizophrenia. It's these kind of studies.
4: Yeah, yeah. so that's what's really happening. And. Um, I mean, that's all very exciting, but what we have to keep in mind is that uh, the effects of those genes are very small and that together they explain very little of the total heritability of the trait. So that means that uh, there are more genes that we still have to discover and those genes will have smaller effects than the genes that we currently have identified. We've actually found the biggest ones already, and they're yep. not very big. Yeah, yeah. so it will be increasingly smaller, the effect sizes of the genes.
3: Are there missing genes, or are we just thinking about how these genes work in the wrong way?
4: Well, I think both. So we are missing uh, genetic variants that are very rare, for example, because these are very difficult to detect, and they might have a larger effect, that we need different strategies and um, yeah, different uh, genotyping for that. Uh, but there also might be different statistical strategies that we have to yeah, employ yeah, sure. in order to find uh, common variants, such as gene set analysis, for example. Uh, well, what do you mean by gene set analysis? Yeah, so what we, what we have been doing um, mostly up until now is to uh, determine the effect of every single SNP, every single genetic variant at a time. So each single one? Yeah. And what we would like to do is to say, well, we're not really interested in a single variant effect, but we are interested in all the variants that are um, related to uh, this and this particular pathway. For example, the dopamine pathway, we have a certain idea of which genes are involved in that pathway, so we can select all the variants that are important for that pathway, and then test the effect of those variants as a group instead of looking at the single effects. And that will increase our effect size, and it will also be um, easy, more easy to interpret. So instead of just going, OK, there's
3: this single thing here, single thing here, you're saying, as, as a whole, all the genes involved in this kind of thing, are they important? And what do you find when you take that kind of approach? Yeah, so we, have,
4: uh, we and others have taken this approach, and um, we were able to find certain um, synaptic uh, pathways that were associated with schizophrenia, for example, and uh, we also found uh, specific gene sets associated with uh, IQ. And we weren't able to detect any of those genes if we wouldn't have done a gene set analysis. So by themselves, these, these genes were not um, strongly enough associated with the, with the trait. But when we looked at them in, the, in, in their context, in their functional genetic context, we were able to associate them with the trait. So apart from doing maybe bigger and bigger
3: ever studies or this kind of analysis of lots of genes all bundled together, how else can we try and understand perhaps what some of these variations actually do? Because sometimes it feels to me we've collected a lot of stamps, but we don't know how they work.
4: Yeah, so I think that's an important next step to find out uh, how does it actually work. And uh, so gene set analysis might be one step in the right direction, but it it might point us towards um, important pathways, but it doesn't really tell us how things work. So what we need is functional genomic follow-up studies. We we need molecular biologists to look at our findings and to uh, design experiments where they can actually uh, manipulate uh, the gene or the set of genes and look at their effect on a cellular level. I guess the problem with some of these variations that we found is they're not necessarily
3: in genes, Uh, also they're in humans, a lot of molecular biologists work in animal models. Tell me about the way that uh, you're starting to move towards trying to understand these in in cells.
4: Yeah, so that's that's true, I mean uh, not all the results that we get are directly um, available for use in functional genomics experiments, so... One of the recent developments in, uh, in biology is, uh, uh, is iPSC, induced pluripotent stem cells. These are kind of the turn-back-the-clock cells. Yeah. yeah, so those are cells that you can take, for example, from a hair or from the skin and you reprogram into an embryonic state and then you can uh, differentiate them to any kind of cell you like. I like magic. Yeah. I, love yeah. them. <laughs> I also think it's magic because I can't do it myself. My colleagues do this. So you can reprogram cells and differentiate them from patients and controls. And then you can, for example, select patients that have a whole bunch of uh, risk factors for schizophrenia or another disease. So you don't need one gene, and you don't even have to know the function of the genes. And uh, your findings don't even have to be inside genes. You simply select people based on their uh, uh, genotypic array. And um, you do this for patients and controls. And then you um, differentiate their cells into neurons and um, use uh, cellular assays to look at uh, different phenotypes of the cell. And then hopefully you'll find some differences, which will tell you something about uh, how, the, the different, how the cells function in patients and controls. So you're almost making a, a model organism from an
3: individual patient. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the things that these studies are starting to show? It seems so exciting to me.
4: Yeah, I think it's a very exciting uh, era that we live in, and uh, I really like um, being part of this, although I know, I mean, I can do part of this myself, and the other parts, I need other people to collaborate this. So science, at least in my field, is no longer uh, something that's that's very individual. You have to collaborate with people from your own field to increase your sample size, but also with people from other fields to uh, increase your knowledge of what you're investigating. So I think it's, it's very nice. And
3: with these reprogrammed cells, what sort of results have come out so far? I'm aware it's still at
4: the very early stages. Yeah, so there have been some initial studies, um, and these used uh, one or two patients and one or two controls. So these are very small scale, uh, but they were published in very good journals because these were the first ones to do this. And uh, for schizophrenia, for example, they found um, differences in synaptic pathways between cells from patients and controls. But these studies, they do need replication. Um, Because, yeah, it's it's an NS1 or NS2 study, so we do need larger samples for uh, these kinds of studies.
3: That was Daniela Postuma from the University of Amsterdam. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month, and this time it's Braveheart. Nothing to do with Scottish warriors Mel Gibson or, allegedly, the most historically inaccurate film ever made. Braveheart is a mouse gene, but it's one with a difference. Many genes carry the instructions that tell cells to make a particular protein. These are called protein coding genes. The DNA of the gene is read to make an intermediate message called RNA, which then acts as a kind of molecular recipe that the cell's factories use to build the right protein. But now there's a growing number of genes we know about that don't make proteins. Instead, the RNA they produce, known as non-coding RNA, is useful to the cell in different ways. For example, by helping to switch genes on and off. Graveheart is one of these non-coding RNAs, and it's needed to help turn early embryonic cells into heart cells during the early stages of development in the womb. No kilt required. That's all for now. I'll be back next month finding out how genetic engineering can make better plants, which could help feed the world in future. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can email me, genetics at the naked You can also get in touch on the Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me, at Naked Genetics. Every episode of Naked Genetics is available on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.